pray once again. Lord, I pray that you may uh, cause your strength to be made evident in our moments together, that your word would do its powerful work, and that you might uh, enable me, Lord, uh, to proclaim the riches of your truth and your wondrous gospel and uh, the blessings of what it means to uh, reflect upon Christ. We pray in his name. Amen. I hope that you're beginning to realize the incredible anniversary that our church is approaching here in several days as we uh, come closer now to our 200th anniversary as a church in about two weeks. The 29th is when we'll have a special service uh, dedicated to that along with the celebration uh, Labor Day weekend at the end of the year. Um, I just want you to know, and I hope you'll realize, this is a rather rare opportunity. It doesn't come, ac come across our schedule. It's rather infrequent. And it's not very often that a local church will reach such a historic milestone. So I want you to know I'm, I'm really weighing this heavily in my mind as I think about the incredible uh, significance of this. And so I've decided for the next several Sundays, I'd like to preach uh, several sermons devoted to reflections on local church ministry, because that's what this church has always been, a local church. And uh, I don't want just merely to look backward. I want us to uh, obviously celebrate the past, but I want to speak to the present. And I want our church family uh, to think through the multitude of reasons that we have to celebrate our rich, long history. But I also pray that we will never lose sight of where we are, never lose sight of where God would plan to have us go by His grace. And so as we celebrate, I hope that you will come to appreciate, in the midst of what is going to happen in the next several weeks, that you will appreciate anew and afresh and treasure more and more God Himself. Because if anything is to be highlighted, it is God in the middle of all this. Multiple generations of believers in this area of Long Island, at one time called New Village, at other times been called Center Reach, now it's called Lake Grove. Over two centuries of people have experienced God's grace. They have experienced God's goodness. They have experienced God's love. And we are here today as beneficiaries of the faithful service of many believers who have labored and they have served Christ in this church family. And so the theme I wanted to explore with you today is the theme taken from my text here in Colossians chapter 1, verses 28 and 29. It's called Toiling in Gospel Ministry. So I want to begin with a question. What is to be our past and present focus in local church ministry? And I want us to think along those lines of the treasure that we have of gospel ministry. How many of you are familiar with the PBS show called Antiques Roadshow? Anybody seen that? Okay, a number of you have. Uh, every so often I'll start watching that about halfway through. I usually start nodding off. But anyway, um, that's true of me at that time of night. Um, what happens is that different antique owners, people will come in with an item that they bring uh, that belongs to them. And uh, they'll be paired up with an appraiser who is able to explain often to them. They have no idea wh where it was made and what's the significance of it. So they tell them where it was made. They tell them uh, historical uh, data about the various artifacts and the antiques that they're bringing in. And sometimes as people bring in something that was handed down from generation after generation to generation, they don't realize what they've got in their hand. 
And there have been some astounding appraisals. I mean, people will, they just get shocked when they hear the actual monetary value of the kinds of items that they've had and received from their family. And I find it interesting, having heard like some astounding amount of money, thousands and thousands, tens of thousands of dollars, some of these things that people have, and they say this, I would never sell this. This is something that's been handed down through my family. It's, it's a treasure. We will always hold on to it. And I would just say to you, as I've thought about that, that every member of this church has had passed down to us a priceless treasure, the gospel of Jesus Christ. And the ministry in our local church and every local church of Jesus Christ is to focus her ministry around this costly treasure. You see, Paul didn't need anyone to provide him an appraisal of the value of the gospel of Jesus Christ. He knew the gospel which he and his fellow believers had graciously and freely received from God was just that, a priceless treasure. And you can pick up some words of that in this text. If you have your Bible open, you look at verse 27 of chapter 1, and you'll notice that he alludes to the focus of gospel ministry with these words. It centers around the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles. What is this mystery and what is this valuable treasure? It is Christ in you, the hope of glory. There is no more valuable gift than that which we have been given in the gospel, the gift of Jesus Christ himself. There is no greater treasure in all the world than this. In 2 Corinthians 8, Paul says, You know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor. To do what? For the purpose that you, through his poverty, might become rich. All of us are bankrupt when it comes to our righteousness. We are spiritual paupers because we have foolishly invested again and again in idolatrous treasures, worshiping creation instead of worshiping the Creator. Spiritually speaking, we are blind, we are bound in our sin, and therefore we are banished from God. But the gospel, the good news from God, is that God in His great love gave us His greatest treasure, His one and only Son, Jesus Christ. And Jesus left the glories of heaven and became a man, and even though he lived a perfect and righteous life, he was treated how? He was rejected, he was dishonored, he was treated unjustly. And therefore, he truly did become poor because his death on the cross was the epitome of spiritual poverty. Because he took upon himself the punishment that we deserved. And by, and but God vindicated him and God raised him from the dead, and because of his great love, Jesus graciously bestows upon undeserving sinners like you and me his righteousness, his forgiveness, his new life to all who repent of their sin and to all who believe upon him. Look down in your text here to chapter 2, verses 2 and 3, and listen to the way Paul provides an apostolic appraisal of the treasure of Jesus in the gospel. Look at that, verses 2 and 3. He says, the gospel provides heart encouragement, unifying love with fellow believers, and immeasurable wealth that comes from the full assurance of understanding. 
resulting in a true knowledge of God's mystery, that is, Christ himself, in whom are hidden all the, what, treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I don't know if you caught it yesterday, but uh, Newsday, there was an article about a televangelist. Interestingly enough, his last name is Dollar, and he's asking for donations to buy him uh, some private jet for like $47 million or something so that he can fly all over the place and quote unquote do God's work and all this stuff. Meanwhile, he's trying to tell people, if you give me a seat of money, you'll get rich. Preaching the wrong kind of, of riches. It's all in error. But look at this. The gospel of Jesus Christ says, at one time, all of us were alienated from God, at odds against God. We were hostile in our minds. Look at verse chapter 1, verse 21. We were engaging in evil deeds. That was the characteristic of our lives. And yet Jesus reconciles rebel, rebels like you and me in his fleshly body through death on the cross in order that he might what? This is a great verse. You've got to underline this in your Bible. It's a wonderful statement of what the gospel means and the wonders of what it is to enjoy this riches, this true, true riches, to present us before God holy and blameless and beyond reproach. It can't get any better than that, my friend. That is, to be truly wealthy is to have that status conferred upon you. This is the greatest treasure the world has ever offered, been offered. And there's no way to put a price tag on this kind of fortune. This treasure has not changed. It remains the simple, glorious, good news that comes from God, about what God has done in Christ. And in exchange for our sin, our worthless rags of self-righteousness, we receive in exchange Jesus himself. We become joint heirs with Christ. We are adopted by God. We are elevated from being penniless orphans who have committed a lifetime of cosmic crimes again and again and again, and we are facing a, 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 an endless uh, sentence to the penitentiary. And instead of that, we become family members of the richest and most righteous family in the universe, the family of God. It's incredible. No wonder Paul reminded the Corinthian believers when he wrote them in 1 Corinthians 15, he says, the gospel obviously is of first importance. It is the great treasure. There is no greater message. There is no greater valuable truth than that. There is no more precious doctrine than this. Verse 27, Christ in you, the hope of glory. I wonder, have you, can, can you say that you personally have received this treasure? Do you understand and see yourself as a person who truly is enjoying the riches of status before God because of Jesus Christ, that you are clothed with his righteousness by faith? My friend, this is not handed down to you just because you may have had a relative that attended this church many years ago, and therefore you've somehow received this treasure. It doesn't come down to you biologically. It is something that you must, as a person, Repent and you must acknowledge your own need for it, your own spiritual bankruptcy, and then you must receive it by faith and trust Christ yourself. And therefore, you are given and extended this wonderful, gracious gift, which will bless you for eternity. Only when Christ is in you will you reach the goal for which you were created. Verse 28. What is the goal that God has for you? Why did he make you? So that you could be complete 
in Him, complete or mature in Christ. And the gospel has been, and I pray it will always remain, the focus of ministry in this church. I'm told that years before I came, years before I was around here, it was the old white church down on Middle Country Road. It had a sign out front that said what? Jesus saves. That is the gospel. We need saving. Jesus is the only one who can do it. And he does it to all who repent and believe. And I would say this, that to receive the treasure of Christ in the gospel, then we who are blessed to have received that gospel, then it is our privilege to minister that gospel to each other within this church family and to minister in the greater context of the people we interact with who do not, as of yet, treasure this gospel. And therefore, it is our privilege and responsibility to point them to that great treasure and point them to Christ. If nothing else, as we talk about this wonderful treasure of the gospel, there certainly can be said there's no boasting about us. All the boasting needs to go directly toward God because He is the one who has graciously given us all these things in Christ. So in our next couple of weeks as we celebrate together, do not hear us tooting our own horn. We are a church of, of sinners saved by grace, and we are here to proclaim Christ and His glory and His great gospel. All right, a second point here, as you hopefully are more alert than I am at this moment. <clears throat> what is the nature of local church ministry? Now, this is where I began to understand as Paul described how he's involved in this local church ministry. I want you to pick up a little bit of the insight as to how he viewed gospel ministry within a local church. And really what we're going to point out here is he's going to comment on the toil of gospel ministry. Now there are many analogies, and I won't go into those, as to how you could describe what ministry in local church is like. It can be compared to animal husbandry, like taking care of sheep. It can be compared to, to agricultural images like gardening or biological with a human body and a head and you know hands and feet, whatever. But in this passage of Colossians, here Paul, the missionary, the statesman of the gospel, the apostle, he alludes to the gospel ministry from the point of view of using a, an athletic metaphor or comparison or, and or a construction uh, metaphor. Look at this verse 29 and then to verse 1 of chapter 2. Chapter 1, verse 29. For this purpose, I also labor. That's a key word. I labor. Striving according to his power, which mightily works within me. Verse 1, for I want you to know how great a struggle I have on your behalf. Let's be very clear. Gospel ministry is not effortless. It is not automatic. Handing off the baton of the gospel from one person to another, the, one, the next one's behind us, whether it be an unbeliever who needs to hear the truth of who Christ is and what he's done for them on the cross, or whether it's handing, again, the truths and the reminders of those around us who are believers. Here, here's the gospel. Don't forget who you are in Christ. We're involved in this race, and ministry is sort of like running an exhausting marathon race. It takes sustained effort. The word there, labor, verse 29, it has, it has the idea of laboring or being involved in activity to the point of exhaustion. 
Now, I want you to stop and think of a moment in your life. I wish we could all share these things, but we won't do that today. But think of a moment in your life when you said, I was completely exhausted. Can you think of some time in your life where you felt that? Hopefully it's not yesterday or today. But um, I've been thinking of a number of things. One thing I could think of is uh, playing racquetball years ago when I was younger. Man, you play a couple hours of racquetball, there is nothing left. Uh, you sit down, I can't hardly move. Uh, but I think ones that came to my mind were two, two different times when I was in camp. Uh, I went there, it was about seventh grade, eighth grade, boys camp, and we went, spent one afternoon junior life-saving test. Man, that about, I almost drowned. I mean, I was so tired. He had us uh, swimming a mile or two across this pond, and then we had to pick up a cinder block from under, on the muddy floor of this pond. It was nasty, disgusting, but I didn't think I was going to be able to get up there. I thought I was going to drown. I mean, it was just... At the end of that day, I thought I had nothing left. Well, that was nothing compared to later in that session of camp, we went on the Appalachian Trail, and we were climbing in the western part of North Carolina, and we would go straight up one hill and straight down the other side, and straight up another hill and down the other side, and I thought, gee, I'm so tired, I can't hardly put one foot in front of the other one, because we had these big heavy packs on our back, I'd never done anything like that. So those are the images that come to my mind when I've thought about that. I'm not the greatest athlete in the world, so maybe you can compare an athletic experience of yours. But certainly we all know exhaustion, do we not? And when, Greek, when Paul chose the Greek word here, verse 29, striving, struggling, it's a word from which we get the English word agonize. That's probably the association many of you have when you go to the gym. Oh, going into this agony place, you know. This is where I just have to sit there and deal with this workout, which I'd rather not be doing. I'd rather be home eating an ice cream sundae. But the idea of agonize is a word that was commonly used in that culture to refer to people who went to the gym. And so it's a working out, athletic training. And we know that when you do athletic training, it requires a tremendous amount of energy that needs to be expended and concentrated effort. And so I think that's a reminder for gospel ministry that it's not easy. Gospel ministry is not easy. It's an uphill climb. And ministry in the local church has always been in the first century, when Paul was writing this, in the 19th century, 1800s, of this church's beginning, or the 20th century, the 21st centuries, even now, it calls for ongoing effort on the part of all of God's people. There's some heavy, there's some heavy lifting to be done in gospel ministry. Now, I've done, I have a few moments I want to take in thinking about why that is. I can't expand this on this completely, but let's take a couple of thoughts about why that might be the case. One obvious reason is because we're faced with intense spiritual battles, and we dare not ever forget that. Satan and his demonic helpers love to blind people to the truth and the treasures of the gospel, 2 Corinthians 4. And spiritual battle that we are facing in ministry is not primarily against other people. But Ephesians 6 says that there's a, there's a spiritual battle going on beyond those people. It's a battle for spiritual realities and who's going to buy into what kind of truth and who's, uh, what kind of, of system of understanding truth and, uh, and, and, and what kind of worldview they're going to have. And so he talks about the forces of darkness. He talks about the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. These are realities that are there. Whether you realize it or not, they're there. And so it's not surprising that in that same passage of spiritual warfare in Ephesians 6, Paul notes the fact that one of the areas of 
exhausting effort that we're to apply to ourselves is to always be praying. Praying, praying, praying. Prayer is important because why? Because we need God. We need Him to do what we cannot do. We need Him to open people's eyes. We need Him to uh, give us encouragement in our ministry. And so here's Paul. He, he, he himself, at the end of that passage where he talks about all these spiritual forces of wickedness, he says, be sure to pray for me. I need prayer as I seek to make the gospel known. And so he asks for boldness. He asks for courage. He also commended, if you will, turn a couple pages of your text here in Colossians 1, turn a couple pages to Colossians 4. And notice another indication of the kind of laboring ministry that's associated with prayer. Verse 12, Colossians 4.12, Paul draws attention to Epaphras, who he commended for his continuous, not just an occasional, but a continuous earnestness laboring in prayer. For whom? Not just for himself. He's praying for other believers. And what is he praying for? Look at verse 12. That they, that is the believers in the local church there in Colossae, that they might stand complete and fully assured in all the will of God. What a great thing to pray for. That they might stand complete or mature. Just absolutely rock solid. They're claiming the gospel. They're confident of it. And they're therefore not being taken off of their message. And they're being able to live for Christ. Fully assured. Knowing what God has said, taught in His Word. You see, prayer is not easy. Persisting in prayer is sustained only by the treasuring of the gospel. The gospel is what helps us continue to pray because the more we're amazed by grace, the more we desire to pray and seek God to do what he's done in our hearts and lives, to keep doing it in us and to keep doing it in other people's hearts and lives as well. See, we don't pray in order to gain God's approval. That's not the way it works. We pray because we're constantly in need of God's resources, constantly in need of His grace, constantly in need of His intervention. None of us, I dare say, contrary to many assumptions that many people have, none of us can change another person's heart. You may be the most consistently nagging mother who nags your kids a million times and berates them and you know, criticize them and find their faults, and you think if I do it enough, maybe they'll change. I'm telling you right now, you will never change your kids. You'll never change your spouse. You will never change your pastor. You will never change your neighbor. You never change your mother-in-law. You're not going to change anybody. You cannot change people's hearts. And that's why prayer is laborious, because you're waiting on God to change people's hearts and to do what only He can do. See, only God, through the gospel, can melt the hardened heart. Didn't he melt Paul's heart? I mean, that was pretty hard, folks. He was doing what he could to destroy the church. Only God in the gospel can make alive, make alive a soul that's dead in sin. Only God in the gospel can motivate people to serve in gospel ministry. Only God in the gospel can break down walls of prejudice and animosity. So I appeal to you, my friends, pray for the gospel ministry in this church. Utilize the member prayer guide that we have handed out to all our members. If you're a member, we're asking you to utilize that on a regular basis. Pray for the members of our church. Pray those prayers that are listed in the booklet, which are biblical prayers. 
Pray that God's name will be hallowed. Pray that God's will will be done on this earth, in this church, as it is in heaven. Pray that His kingdom will come, His will will be done. I've included in your notes a, a very powerful quote from Samuel Chadwick. I don't know who he is. I forgot to look up who this guy is, but his quote is quite helpful. Satan dreads nothing but prayer. His one concern is to keep the saints from praying. He fears nothing from prayerless studies, prayerless work, and prayerless religion. He laughs at our toil. He mocks our wisdom, but he trembles when we pray. That's something to think about, folks. And so we labor. We labor in prayer. And there's another area of which we labor, not only because we are looking for God to do what we cannot do, but also because ministry in local church, gospel ministry in local church, can sometimes lead to exhaustion because spiritual formation and discipleship often is and likely will always be a lifelong process or a long process, you could say. It's a long process. You see, Paul had to deal with all sorts of challenges in these churches of people who were very slow to catch it, catch on. So in Corinth, he had to speak to the carnal Christians, the baby Christians, say, listen, I got to keep giving you pablum when other people are already taking meat. You know, you're so slow in developing and maturing here. Paul knew the wearisome dynamic of having to lovingly confront the sin in the lives of brothers and sisters in Christ, which sometimes would lead to church discipline. You have to do that sometimes. It's inconvenient. It's, it's burdensome. It's grievous. It's something we do not like to do. I've been reading through some of the records of the church history here, and I came across this, interestingly enough, 1859. Where were you in 1859? Oh, sorry. None of you were there. It said, a member of the church was charged with unchristian behavior. Doesn't say what's going on. We have no idea. Uh, we read that a group of the deacons visited him. And so they asked questions. I wonder what went on there. And we continue in our reading about this case, find that the accused brother did repent. He did seek the help of the congregation in God. And in the same entry, there's this note, quote, therefore resolved, I guess this is the minutes, Therefore it is resolved that we will leave the whole matter in the hands and wisdom of the great judge of all men. And we further resolve to watch over and pray for the members of this church and endeavor at all times to bring back the airing with our entreaties and our prayer. That's beautiful. That's restorative discipline done in love. That's part of our history. It's wonderful. And we continue that to this day. We don't ever want to see people leave our midst. We want to see them follow Christ. We want to see them repent. We want to see them walk in the light, walk in the truth. But sometimes it takes an addition, a process of confronting people and speaking to them lovingly, correcting them, speaking directly to them. And you can do it on a one-on-one -on -one kind of thing where you, if you see a brother, you don't just ignore it. You speak to them. You take an interest in them. I haven't seen you in four or five weeks. Where you been, man? What's up? What's up in your life? What's become important to you that you're missing out on our time together as a church family? Those kind of loving questions and loving concern, prayers. That's what Paul was talking about. Laboring. You just keep at it. You keep going. There's a lot of sacrifices involved in gospel ministry. A lot of you know that. You've been doing it for many years now. Some of you may think, oh, I'm tired of all this. Yeah, I hear you. But we do it because of what we know is at stake. We're trying to bring the gospel to the next generation. We're trying to be faithful. 
So Paul, even Paul knew the inconvenience. He was under house arrest for years, couldn't move around. He's stuck in this place, can't go anywhere. It's not convenient sometimes when you involve in gospel ministry. Look what he says there. He talks about in Corinthians, the last uh, chapter 1, verse 24. Very interesting uh, to hear his perspective in all these sufferings. You know, you don't hear Paul complaining. You don't hear him saying, oh, you people wear me out. I can't stand it how you guys are. You know, he's not berating them. He's talking about how much he loves them and how much he's given on their behalf, and it's caused him to suffer. So what he says there, in terms of his desire to see them discipled, to bring them maturity and faith in Christ, verse 24, I rejoice in my sufferings. I rejoice in my sufferings? Yeah, that's what he said. Why would he say that? Sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I do my share on behalf of Christ's body, which is a church, in filling up that which is lacking in Christ's affliction. He, he identified himself with Christ. Christ is enduring these things that I go through all this for you and with you. So I would just like to suggest to you, if you're a parent, and you're raising children, remember this long-term perspective. It's laboring to disciple your children to try to point them to Christ and to try to raise your children. It takes a lot of effort. It can wear you out some days, some years, or sometimes a long period of time. It can be very exhausting, but it's worth it. And just like we share in Christ's sufferings, so we can do so in that family. And in your marriage, you say, well, my marriage has been complicated from day one. Hey, welcome to the club. Every relationship is complicated on some level. And so therefore, it's part of learning to trust God and say, I really desire to be used of God and to do some laboring here, do some exhaustive work in trying to live Christ before my spouse, in praying for my spouse, or in growth group. Maybe some of you are in growth group and you say, oh, I don't see people growing in my growth group. I keep laboring. I keep trying to pray for this person. They don't seem to keep coming. Keep praying. Keep encouraging them. Keep lifting them up. I say again, there are people who are lukewarm Jesus warns against people in the church who are lukewarm. You're going to find people who find themselves in that situation at some point. People who still require lots of attention. They seem like they need somebody to hold their hand a lot. There are people who are also caught in sin. And Galatians 6.1 says, you don't just kick those people to the curb. You restore them with patience and humility. Therefore, it takes time. It takes effort. That's part of what it means to disciple. So let's commit ourselves to do that. Keep doing it because that's how we honor the gospel that we've received. All right, I've got to keep moving on here before <clears throat> I collapse. All right, number three. Third question is, what enables or sustains, a better word maybe, what sustains local church ministry? You say, I, it does sound exhausting. Who in the world wants to do all this? Exhausting church ministry. Excuse me. And this brings up what I would call from the verse... 29, chapter 1, I call it the tandem dynamic of gospel ministry. The tandem. I'll explain what that is in a minute. But what sustains local church ministry? Well, there's only one answer. You'll see what Paul says there. He says, I strive according to his power. I'm laboring because he's mightily working in me. So it's Jesus' power. It's Jesus' strength that Paul says is enabling him to labor and to carry on with his gospel ministry in the local church. The enabling power to which Christ refers here is the power that comes from Jesus Christ, who, back in verse 16 of chapter 1, is described as the one who created the whole world. Uh, that took a little power, don't you think? So he had power to create the world. He also is the one 
who is able to impart new life, chapter 2, verses 13 and 14, still speaking about Christ, the one who imparts new life in sinners who are dead in their transgressions. That's miraculous power. Life-impartening power. When Jesus rules in our hearts, He gives us power over our flesh. We are given strength to love the unloving. When Jesus takes up residence in our hearts, we are made into new creations with new motivations. And we have an, our ambition at that point, when Jesus has changed it on the inside, our motivation now is to give our lives for Him out of gratitude for His gracious dealings with us. Jesus gives us new desires, new perspective, new responses, new pursuits, and new energy to keep going in this new direction. How many of you have ever had the experience of riding on a tandem bicycle? Okay, a couple of you have. Some of you don't know what a tandem bicycle is. That's a bicycle built for two. My wife and I uh, tried one out years ago in, on the Jersey Shore. Someone had loaned us uh, their place to stay there, and they had a tandem bicycle. I, I must say, it wasn't what we thought it would be. It's a little challenging, a lot challenging, actually. Uh, but once you get into the swing of it, what happens is, uh, you're, when you're so used to doing solo riding, and aren't most of us used to that, where you are the one directing it, right? You provide the direction. You're also the one providing the drivetrain power, right? You're the one pedaling. When you ride in tandem, it means you have to yield to someone who's doing the steering. That can be a little alarming, especially when you can't hardly see where you're going because the person in front of you is blocking the wave, blocking the view, you can't see. So you're sort of relying on them to take you in the direction they feel is the most appropriate one, which I certainly did such a wonderful job that day. <clears throat> But you also notice that at those times when you're tandem biking, you realize that you are lacking in strength, perhaps. You realize as you go up a hill, I don't have the strength to get up this hill by myself. And that's where it's a benefit of having another person who can provide encouragement, who can provide additional pedal power to help you through a difficult time on that ride. And because of Jesus, because he lives in us, in the gospel, and that's what's key here, Christ in you. Therefore, local church ministry is possible because of Christ and what He can do through us and in us. Jesus Christ empowers us to do what He calls us to do. We can do all the challenging things that God calls us to do through Him who gives us adequate strength. Where is that found? Philippians 4. I can do all things through Him who gives me strength. May God enable us to keep, keep going and to see ourselves catching the wind of his favor as we follow and, and treasure the gospel into the next century. Let's pray. <clears throat> Heavenly Father, we must confess that uh, we feel like there's a ring of truth to this passage, Lord. There is no greater treasure than Christ. Our world could point us to many treasures, Lord, but none could ever surpass the truth of Christ and the truth of who we are in Christ in the gospel. And I would pray again, Lord, today, if there's anyone here who has never repented of their sin and let go of whatever they're treasuring other than Christ, whether it's their good works or whether it's their desire to impress other people or their attempts to try to somehow be a spiritual person on their own, Lord, I pray that you would bring to them a new heart, 
a new life in Christ, that they might treasure Christ in a new and fresh way and understand what it is to be fully forgiven and made a child of God by faith. And Lord, I pray for those of us who have been laboring in gospel ministry in this church that you might encourage our hearts. I pray that you would help us to celebrate your faithfulness, your goodness. Help us, Lord, to see with your eyes the challenges around us and to realize this is what you've been calling us to do in our families, in our marriages, in our growth groups, in our church family fellowship, among the unbelievers around us, Lord. Help us to keep laboring and to be faithful and to be celebrating your gospel every day. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.